I want to begin with a question that every church eventually is going to have to answer. From where do we get our, our power? Uh, when a worship team leads on a Sunday morning or a pastor preaches or, or a youth team works with students or, or um, this coming week, all the volunteers and, and Marcia and her crew, uh, where do they get the power to, to do those sorts of things in a way that's effective and fruitful and, and honors God? How do we, in other words, make a difference in people's lives and do what God has called us to do? Well, Jesus said, and he used an interesting phrase. He said that his people, his followers, would be clothed in power. Now, what does that look like, to be clothed in power? What does that, what does that mean? So this morning, I'm going to look at three questions. The first is, why does the church need power? It might seem obvious, but it's a question we need to delve into. The second is, how has God supplied the power that we need, or where do we get the power from? And the third is, what does this mean for us today, to be clothed in power? So let's begin with, why do we need power? And there's two reasons I want to begin with. The first is a biblical reason. The second is a very practical reason. Here's the biblical reason. Right before Jesus died, he said this to his disciples. And this is from the same chapter that, uh, uh, from which uh, Sarah just read, John 14, beginning at verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Interesting things said here. All who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing. That's fine until you start to think about this. What are the things that Jesus did when he walked this earth? Well, he preached with power and profundity. People uh, were engaged. They They were driven to a point to choose or reject his truth. He performed miracles, water into wine, and the lame could walk, the blind could see, multiply the fish and loaves. He even brought people back from the dead. And then he says, if we have faith, we will do the same sorts of things. But he doesn't stop there. He says they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I remember the first time I heard this phrase, I think it was in college and we were doing a Bible study. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Jesus said, we're going to do even greater things than the things he did when he walked the earth? That sounded almost you know, sacrilegious. How is that possible? You know, and, and when you think about that, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and you have this sense of inadequacy. We're called to do the things Jesus did when he walked the earth and even greater things. So why does the church need power? We need power because we are to be an extension of Jesus' life and ministry. We are to be about doing the things that he did when he walked this earth. And then soon before Jesus left this earth, Jesus said this in Luke 24. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is saying, we are witnesses 
to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that transformed the early church, that transformed the disciples. And we're called to witness to every nation and every people. Now, when you step back and you think about what Jesus is calling us to do and be, we realize that we are desperate for God's power, or we don't have a chance in our own strength and power to do these things. That's the biblical reason for why we need power. But there's also a practical reason. There's a book called Towards the Conversion of England. It was originally published in in 1945, just after World War II ended. And the book identified trends like the drift from religion, the decline in church going, the collapse of moral standards. And then the book went on to outline a plan that would confront, quote, the task of the conversion of England with a deep sense of expectancy of what God can accomplish. Now, it's a humbling thing to read because now 70 plus years later, you realize that 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 dream, that vision has not been fulfilled. Not yet. I mean, we've probably all been a part of of um, a big plans that we think are going to lead to significant change, maybe in our life, our marriage, our family, our our job, our school, our church. And those things didn't really bear fruit. They didn't really pan out. Now, I don't want to bore you with stats, but there's there's very little evidence that churches in in, in North America are experiencing the kind of power on a regular basis, consistent basis that Jesus is talking about here. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite uh, authors, uh, wrote this. It's something that haunts me. He wrote, beware of worshiping Jesus as the son of God and professing your faith in him as the savior of the world while you blaspheme him by the complete evidence in your daily life that he's powerless to do anything in and through you. And that could be applied to churches as well, couldn't it? When we lack power, it's a serious thing. We need power. And when the church lacks power, it hinders our witness to the world around us. So let me ask a second question. From where do we get our power? I'm going to narrow it down to probably the two most common answers before looking at an answer that I think sometimes is overlooked. It's given lip service, but often overlooked in its application. So let's take a look at some of the two common answers that people often say, what do we need to do to get this church going in the right direction or this or that? Well, a lot of people think you need the right leader to bring the right power and direction so the church can do what it needs to get done. So what does the search committee do? It gets together and it outlines certain qualities person of vision, compassionate, sensitive to needs, able to tr- handle a church of a certain size, a motivator, a gifted teacher, preacher, uh, in other words, a super pastor. And we think if we get the right pastor, the right leader, that we will have the power that the church needs. Leadership is important. It's hard to underestimate how important having the right leader is, but it's, but it's not enough. A Harvard professor said organizations that are run by heroes hit barriers. So as important as good leadership is, and it is important, it is not enough to supply the power the church needs. Others think we need the right strategy for the church to move ahead. Again, it's, it's, not hard, it's, 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 it's hard to criticize strategic thinking. Churches ought to be clear on what they're doing, who they are, where they're going, what they want to accomplish, and what it's going to look like if they meet their goals. But again, 
there is a little bit of a something we need to be careful of. I mean, think about it. In, in, in the States, in Canada, in Western Europe, churches have improved in their ability to set strategies, to set vision, to have measurable goals, just as their impact has diminished in the past several decades. And you could argue we'd be worse off except for those strategies, but the strategies clearly aren't enough. So there's not enough power in having the right leader or leaders or the right strategy. We need something more than that. So I want to read from you, uh, for you from Acts chapter 2. And it gives us the direction from where we can get this power, the real power. It's a power that can work even when we don't have the best leadership or the best direction. And it's taking place on one of the major Jewish holidays, the day of Pentecost, around 30 A.D. in Jerusalem. Jesus has left this earth. He's descended or ascended into heaven. And, and, and Pentecost was a festival where the people of God would get together and they would thank God for blessing them with a harvest. But then something completely unexpected happens at this particular Pentecost. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Talking about the, the early church. There's about 120 of them. That's all there are. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be a tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now that's kind of a, like, whoa, that's a little bit bizarre. It's outside of our experience. They hear a sound like a hurricane. They see what seemed to be tongues of fire. And, speak, and there's all sorts of messages being spoken in all these different languages and dialects. And then in verse 12, they say, amazed and perplexed, they ask each other, what does this mean? Good question. Now, there are all sorts of theories about the meaning of this event. Some think it's a reversal of the Tower of, um, of Babel back in Genesis 11, where, you know, God scatters the nations with different languages. Some think it's a parallel to when God uh, descends in fire on Mount Sinai and creates a nation for himself out of the escaped slaves of Egypt. But I love it in the Bible when they tell you something like, what does this mean? And right after a uh, prophet or Jesus says, this is what it means. That's what happens here. So we don't have to guess. In verse 16. Peter stands up and says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So Peter says the meaning of this event is tied into this prophecy from Joel, an Old Testament book. And Joel prophesied, said these words about five or six hundred years before this day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what was going on was the people of Judah had kind of wandered away from God, and, and so God was trying to get their attention. And so he allows a drought to happen and plagues of locusts to get their attention. But God also wants them to know this is not going to last forever. And he says this in Joel 2. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, and the locust swarm. So he covered all the locusts. My great army that I sent among you, you'll have plenty to eat until you're full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you, and never again will my people be ashamed. So Joel predicted, he prophesied that God would end this drought, get rid of the locusts, and they would celebrate once again God's provision at Pentecost. But then Joel promises more. 
he prophesied that God would do something more beyond this. And this is where Peter quotes Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see see visions. And he says, even on my servants, both men and both women, I will pour out my spirit on all these in these days. And everybody who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So one day, Joel says, God is not only going to restore the harvest and restore the people of Israel. He's going to empower each one of his people with his spirit. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and says, all these things that have happened. That's what Joel was talking about. This day, that day is this day. And power has come to all of God's people through the Holy Spirit. And so at Pentecost, the church received power from on high so it could do the job that God had called them to do and be the people that God had called them to be. And for the rest of the book of Acts, as you study the early church, time and again, people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They believe, they're baptized, there are miracles done, people come to Christ. Amazing things happen and the church flourishes. And we have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same power. We have everything that we need to be the church and the people that God has called us to be. We can have leadership. We can have strategies. But ultimately, the power comes from God himself through the gift of his Holy Spirit. You look back at the early church, there's no other way you can explain what happened. 120 people meeting secretly in a room in Jerusalem, no great leaders, 3,000 people in one day come to the Christ. 25,000 Christians by the year 100 AD. 20-some million Christians a couple of hundred years later. How did they grow from being a small movement to the most significant religious force in the Roman Empire in two centuries? You have to explain the fact that in China, for example, they kicked out all the missionaries and pastors back in the early, or excuse me, in the middle 20th century. The government tried to eradicate the church. But against all odds, the church was not decimated. In fact, it didn't just maintain and survive. It exploded. Over 80 million people now and growing by the day. Somebody wrote this about this phenomenon. We are witnessing in China the the most significant transformational Christian movement in the history of the church. And he says, remember, not unlike the early church, these people had very few Bibles. At times they shared only one page to, to a house church, and then they would swap that page with another house church. They had no professional clergy, no official leadership structures, no central organization, no mass meetings, and yet they grew like mad. How is this possible? How did they do it? I don't know how you can explain this unless you believe that the same Holy Spirit that grew the church in the first century is still at work today. And that we can be clothed in power to do what God has called us to do. The church needs power from on high. And God has richly provided us with all the power that we need through his Holy Spirit, the helper. Finally, What does this mean for us today? Well, it reminds us that we need God in this power. I mean, we know that most churches are in a state of decline or plateauing. Many growing churches 
are growing by transfer, not necessarily by conversion. Churches in the other parts of the world, Africa and Asia, Latin America, South America, uh, even in the Middle East, they're growing. They're exploding. But the church in the western part of the world is, is not. We need power. And we face a temptation that we want to try to do this or do that to, to save the church. Get the right leaders, get the right techniques, get the right programs, get the right worship style. But we're trying to do that through our human strength and our education and our ideas, which aren't bad. But true power comes from the Holy Spirit. In 1989, a church started in New York City, which is a difficult place to start a church. But as they started, something happened. Their pastor writes, During those first three years, there was the same feeling of inevitability that comes in times of awakening. The gospel seemed brand new. Sleepy and nominal Christians awoke with a start. People got converted every week. The air was charged with electricity. Every decision turned out to be wise. Everybody performed above and beyond their gifts and abilities. That is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit at work. We can't control it. We can't manipulate it. More than anything, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be clothed in power from on high. So what does this mean for us today? We need to pray that the Spirit will bring renewal and revival. The Spirit will empower us. That the Spirit would give us the eyes of Christ to see others as individuals created in His image, worthy of our love and respect. That the Holy Spirit would give us the, the mind of Christ to understand Scripture and, and to understand what's going on in the world and to have God's perspective. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will give us a heart like God's, that it will be burdened by the things that burden and break God's heart. We need the Spirit to move in a personal way and in a corporate way. So I want to close by praying towards that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. And we long for the Spirit's power to be experienced in our lives as individuals. So Lord, come and through the Holy Spirit, blow the cobwebs off our souls. Revive those of us who have fallen asleep into apathy. Make the gospel new to us. Work in us and through us, Lord, to do the things that Jesus Christ did when he walked this earth and to do even greater things, to truly be an extension of his life and ministry. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Renew us. Help us to depend upon you and not our own strength. Move among us, Lord. We ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen.